Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. I'm going to pray for us. My name is Justin Gottlieb, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to get to open the Bible with you this morning and to, to sit under the Word of God and to be to hear what God wants us to hear from His Word as He's chosen to reveal Himself. It's, it's a great, greatly special thing we get to do together. So let's pray and ask for His help in this time. Spirit of God, I pray you would be with us now. And I pray that... Um, that as you say in Psalm 29, that the, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And I pray you would help us to see that, to hear that, to know that truth, to experience that truth now. So would you speak to us through your word, bringing us faith, hope, repentance, joy that we can only find in you. Would you please do it? Amen. Amen. I somehow ended up in a room with The Perfect Storm on Netflix a couple weeks ago. Now this movie, if you don't know of it, um, is, is now 22 years old and is what Wikipedia calls creative nonfiction, which I think means the writer starts with a few facts and fully commits with their whole heart to those facts not getting in the way of a good story. So in this movie, a swordboat captain played by, by George Clooney because, you know, had to happen. So he, he's on a cold streak of catching fish. And the boat owner isn't happy because he's not making money off of the poor catches and neither is the crew happy. And the captain feels all this pressure. So determined to have a good trip before the season finishes, Clooney, I, I don't remember what his actual name was. I'm just going to keep referring to him as Clooney. So Clooney convinces his crew to take one last trip with him on a quick turnaround. And the drama builds in the movie as loved ones attempt to keep them from going on this trip. And the first part of the trip is a total bust as they catch few fish. But then, but then, Clooney decides they should go even further out in the ocean, from the, further away from the coast. And then, you'll never believe it, they start catching a lot of fish. A lot of fish. They catch so many fish that there's, there's not room for any more. But just then, the ice machine breaks. So the boat's full of fish. The biggest catch these guys have ever had is caught and stored. But they don't have any more ice, and they're days away from cashing in. And, and what they need more than anything is to get back to the market. Then the truly awful news comes. There's a terrible storm in their path. It's the perfect storm. Three storms are coming together in a way that will be devastating for anyone and anything in their way, in its way, and the crew is left with two options. One, they can wait out the storm and stay safe, knowing that the fish will go bad and earn no money. Second option is they can go through the storm to get the fish to market, but risk their boat capsizing and losing their lives. They realized that there was no third option. There was no third option. No option allowed for them to dodge the storm and still get those fish back to the market before they rotted. They had to decide, do we lose the fish or do we risk losing our lives? 
and desperate to get their catch back to the market and reap the rewards of their labor, the crew decided it was worth facing the storm, going through the waves, and risking everything. See, the crew, it doesn't seem that this necessarily happened in real life, but the crew, in this movie anyway, counted the cost. They weighed their options. They agreed that getting the fish back to market was their priority. So they turned the boat into the perfect storm and went for it. Their actions were driven by priority. So let's start in Luke uh, 14, 25. We're going to hear from Jesus' words here. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As we begin reading these words, we must notice that Jesus is speaking to crowds now. See, with only a few exceptions, Jesus has spent um, the last few chapters... Um, speaking to religious leaders, the last few chapters of Luke. So if you've been reading the Gospel of Luke or, or listening along as we've been preaching, you may notice how much Jesus has had to say to the religious leaders and how much correction he's had for them. See, repeatedly, Jesus has explained that their supposed good looks, supposed good works, and good records seem so nice on the outside but have missed the mark when it comes to actually following God. And this would undoubtedly prompt some in the crowd and, and likely some in the religious leader community to ask what it means to follow God. Right? The question would be, if those guys with the fancy prayers and insider access who do all the rituals and seem so holy aren't doing this right, what does it mean to follow God? You can imagine someone hearing and thinking, I believe you, Jesus. I want in on this kingdom. How do I follow you, Jesus? What does it look like to be your disciple? And this is a question that I hope we're all asking today, because like those in the crowd, we live in a world broken by sin. We're constantly navigating physical and relational and internal, emotional, all kinds of brokenness that we just weren't built for, and it's all because of sin. It's precisely this kind of broken world that Jesus was born into and grew up in and speaks th these words from Luke 4 into. These aren't going to go up on the screen, but you can hear these words from Luke 4 that Jesus said about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus said that of himself. And then after he said those things, he begins doing them. He begins doing them. He heals people, and he casts out unclean spirits, and he raises people from the dead, and he offers forgiveness of sins. And he does all of that not because people are good, and earned it, but because he is good and loving, and he wants what's best for you and me. So it's natural for us to want in on what Jesus brings. We were created to want in on that, so we should be alongside the crowds wanting to know, Jesus, how do I follow you? How? 
Jesus, what does it look like for me to be your disciple? And so it's in these verses that Jesus is going to answer this question, but we need to take one quick note before that and make a differentiation between Jesus and the religious religion that the leaders Jesus has been um, confronting, the, the one that they were propagating. See, Jesus will tell us how to be a disciple of his. He's going to in these next verses. But he's not telling us that doing these things will earn our place in the kingdom. you got to hear that. See, Jesus will tell us how to be a disciple, but he's not saying suffer and then I'll let you in. He's not saying hate your family and you'll get a ticket. Right? Jesus is saying this is what it means to be my disciple. So let's, let's look at verse 26 and 27 as he gets into that. Because it's here that he begins telling us what it will mean to follow. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is telling us that being a disciple means not only coming to him, that is essential, that is essential, but it also means putting him first. Putting Jesus first is the key. See, this is not a one-time decision, but an ongoing commitment. This is a real-time, every moment of everyday decision. If Jesus is not first, then he says, I cannot be his disciple. See, following Jesus is not simply a box to check or a component of one's life. Following Jesus means that Jesus is not just an area of life for the disciple. Jesus is not something that just happens on Sunday morning, or it's not something that happens only in a gospel community. Jesus is the one to whom every area of our lives must submit. See, Jesus is not part of life. He is life. You see the difference there? Jesus is not part of life. He is life. Jesus must be first in every area of life. And to help us see this, he gives us two critical places, areas of life, where uh, there will be conflicts or a jostling for position in the life of a disciple. And the first of these, as you probably heard there and noticed, because it's quite striking, is family. See, Jesus says directly in verse 26 that to not put him first, even over family, is not to follow him properly. So when Jesus says the disciple must hate his family, we do want to point out there's a rhetorical nature to the language here. Okay, Jesus is saying that the disciple must love his or her family less than Jesus. Hate in this instance really means love less. Okay, just want to put that out there. So in one way, when Jesus says that the disciple must hate his family, it sounds harsher than it is. That's one way. So he's not telling me to look at my kids and say, I hate you. All right, that's not what's going on there. Although if I step on one more Lego piece left on the floor. Um, but, but Jesus' call to hate one's family is a call to put Jesus first over family. And what Jesus wants from me uh, must take precedence over what my family wants from me. Jesus must come first. And that said, the practical realities of putting Jesus first would have been harsh to those in the crowd and maybe intimidating uh, to some of us today. Because following Jesus would mean Rejection by family. Following Jesus would lead to immediate conflict with values 
with rituals, with schedule and ideology of family. And, and not merely the stuff that you avoid talking about over Thanksgiving dinner, but the type of stuff that leads you to not being invited to Thanksgiving dinner. Right? Jesus must be first over family in the life of a disciple, which, which, as we said, seems harsh and is often going to be difficult. But interestingly enough, what we find over and over is that putting Jesus first should end with you and I being more loving, more caring, more generous, and more understanding to our family members as we follow the commands of Jesus. See, it's challenging to wrap our minds around it, but the reality of loving family less because we put first benefits, uh, because we put Jesus first, benefits our relationships with our family as we embrace who God has made us to be and, and as we embrace what God has intended for family to be. Now, the second part of life that Jesus commands the disciple to put him first in is bearing his own cross and come after me. It's in verse 27. See, Jesus suffered. Jesus was rejected. And disciples of Jesus can expect the same. Certainly our circumstances will be different, but rejection and suffering will come. So the endurance of suffering is required of us as disciples. And this is what Jesus meant a few chapters back in Luke 9 when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will, will save it. See, the life of one following Jesus will take on marks of Jesus' life. So bearing one's cross, like, like our king did, is required. In the life of the disciple, this may take on many different elements, some physical, some mental, some emotional. The key for a disciple is Jesus being first when it comes to suffering. Jesus first, not comfort. Jesus first, not relief. For you and I to follow Jesus, he must be first. Let's look at verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. A few years ago, I visited some Seven Mile Road members who were sent out of our church to a developing nation to help plant churches and teach English and translate the scriptures. And, and they're here today, so this story's got to be true. And this was the first time I had traveled outside North America, and everywhere I looked, I saw and heard things I didn't understand. And this should be expected. If you know me, it should be expected. But, but there was one oddity that I think will always stick out to me, and, there were a, and it's this. There were a lot of unfinished buildings. Specifically, there were unfinished homes. And so I asked why this happened, because you would literally, literally be driving down the road and there's just houses and stuff that aren't finished. And, um, and I was told, at least I recollect from the time, um, it was explained to me that money was scarce, and because money was scarce, friends, family, neighbors, and, and sometimes the government would make plays on things, and would 
they would constantly ask for stuff when, when somebody receives a, a windfall. So as a result, when people come into some money in an area, they may begin building a house even if they know they can't finish it because then you don't have to give it away. And my point of this is that the plan for, for protecting money then somehow ends up being to spend it on building part of a house. But what was striking to me was that you then end up with these like exposed stairs or houses like concrete structures that don't have a roof. Um, and, and sometimes there's beams exposed and there's, there's all these things and it just sticks out. It's awkward and the point is everyone sees it. Now, it may happen enough there that folks don't notice the awkwardness, but this isn't the example Jesus is giving here. Right? He points out if, if someone is building a watchtower to guard their home or vineyard, they would and should consider what will go into the project. And of course, they will benefit from having this tower, but those benefits will only matter so much as the, they can complete the tower. He points out that others would notice the unfinished project, which signifies something going wrong. So when it comes to following Jesus and living as his disciples, we ought to be the same way as the one building a tower. We should count the cost of following Jesus. We should consider what it will mean to put him first above family and comfort and safety and then commit. See, skipping the step of reflection, of, of thoughtful realization of, of what it will mean to follow Jesus will lead to mocking down the road. And it's not good for anyone. So Jesus tells the crowds to count the cost of being a disciple. Count the cost of being a disciple. But similarly, Jesus points out that a king who's about to lead his army and his country into war will sit down and consider whether he has the troops, the strength, the arms and the strategy to contend with the opposing king who has twice as many troops. And if this king cannot compete with the larger army and the cost is going to be too great, what does the king do? He sends people out to negotiate peace. He sends representatives. If the king is outnumbered two to one and doesn't have a good plan to compensate for his weaknesses, it would be foolish to march into that battle. It may sometimes be heroic, but it's no less foolish. In these illustrations, neither the one building the tower nor the king has enough to finish the task. Did you guys notice that? Right, like the king doesn't have enough troops and the guy building doesn't have enough stuff to do that, or may not. Neither could pull the job off on their own. They needed reflection to understand their circumstance and to respond appropriately. Similarly, it's essential that you and I consider not only the cost of following Jesus, but the cost of not following Jesus. Jesus calls us to make him first, loving our families and ourselves, our own lives, less than him. Consider the cost of discipleship, but also consider the cost of not following Jesus. Consider standing before your maker without Jesus covering your sin. Consider that you and I are, are, are not only the builder who doesn't have the resources to complete the tower on our own, you and I are the kings with an army of righteousness way too small for the task. 
Ultimately, we count the cost of following Jesus, but we've got to realize that what we need is peace with the true king. And Jesus is that peace. He is that peace. Jesus made peace for you and I with his blood. And it's with this reality in mind that he closes this paragraph. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. For the disciple, it is always Jesus first. All that I have must be renounced to follow Jesus. All that you have must be renounced to follow Jesus. So we can list off things. Jesus must be first over my family. Jesus must be first over my time. Jesus must be first over my job. Jesus must be first over my house. Jesus must be first over my bank account. Jesus must be first over my friendships. Jesus must be first. Jesus must be first. Everything else in our lives only finds its rightful place and rightful fruitfulness when Jesus is first. Because when it's Jesus first, there's an order about life that will bring real hope and real peace and real joy, even amongst conflict and hardship and pain and even death in all those other areas. This is true because there's nothing greater than possessing Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who conquered sin with his perfect life and his perfect death on the cross and his perfect resurrection from the grave. And Jesus is the one who will return one day to put away all sin tears, death, and pain forever. The treasure of Jesus is not only for today, but for every day and all eternity. The glory of Jesus never rots, never lessens, never lets down, but only increases for all of time and all of eternity. So Jesus first is the way things were meant to be. Jesus first is for our joy. But Jesus first in the life of the disciple is also for the kingdom. So notice this in verse 34. It says, Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, has ears to hear, let him hear. So in our day, salt is often used for seasoning or helping keep roads and sidewalks from being too slippery. In Jesus' day, it was sometimes used as a fertilizer, and sometimes they, I don't know how this works, but they used it to, to burn up manure. I don't know. Um, if anybody's an expert on that, maybe we'll talk about it someday. Um, but either way, salt being salty matters. See, salt that was no longer salty didn't fulfill its purpose and was, as Jesus says here, it's, it's useless. If I tried to sell you salt that was not salty, you would likely be disappointed with that deal regardless of your intended usage. And you'd leave a bad review for my online salt business. I did come up with names for that, but another time, another place. As a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, I'm to be useful to Jesus. 
I'm to be helpful to the king in extending his rule and reign. Right? We pray that. Let your kingdom come. The reality of that is that it's in our lives. As Jesus is king, his kingdom is in fact coming as he rules over this in my life and that in my life and this around me and that around me. Right? I get to be helpful. We get to be helpful to the king in extending his rule and reign. And that only happens, though, if Jesus is first. And as I've argued above, Jesus first is good for me, but Jesus first is also good for the kingdom. But disciples have got to be salty, which only happens when Jesus is first in our lives. So the application for us today from this text is really straightforward. We need to ask the question, Is Jesus first? Is he first? Is Jesus first in my life? Is Jesus first in your life? Or to list off things he says here, is family first? Our kids first? Our mom and dad first? They're all awesome. Mom and dad and kids are awesome. For real. But even they need you And they need me to make Jesus first so that I can be a disciple of his and who he intends for me to be in that relationship. And it's not hard to to diagnose where we're at on this because if you had to choose to obey Jesus or to make fill-in-the-blank person happy, which do you choose? Or Jesus said it around comfort and suffering as well, right? When it comes to avoiding suffering, do I choose Jesus first? What do I choose if I had to choose between following Jesus and suffering or avoiding pain, but putting someone else or something else first? When Jesus is not first, let's don't skip by it. Let's don't skip by it. Let's don't skip by it today or tomorrow or any day. Let's confess that. Let's turn to Jesus. Us putting other people and things on the throne in our lives is exactly the thing that the Lord came and lived and bled and died for. So let's turn to Jesus today. When he's not first, let's ask for his forgiveness. Let's receive him as king. And let's receive the grace he extends and then let's live out of that because we've heard Jesus say I cannot be his disciple if he's not first if he's not first you cannot be his disciple there is no third option there's no avoiding the storm and getting the fish back to market Jesus must be first with everyone and everything in your life following him in priority so seven mile road let's count the cost Let's count the cost. And then follow Jesus as approved sons and daughters of God, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and cared for in this life and in the next by our Heavenly Father in whom all things must work for our salvation. Let's pray.